Man was made to mirror, to imitate, to image. As we saw in the passage that Joetta just read, that we were made in the likeness, similarity, and so there's something about us as people that has a quality of the character of God himself. And yet when we look at uh, the world we see, a lot of times we don't see God-likeness or Christ-likeness in a lot of the interactions that we have on earth. And so this morning I want to look at some things that Paul is talking about in terms of how people change and specifically in the book of Philippians. We're going to look at a couple of things because there's a lot of things about change that you'll hear um, in, in a lot of the academic world and research. They're trying to figure out how to improve and better this world and our lives. But uh, it's a different take when you come to Scripture. So I want to look at this this morning. Last week we talked about what Christ was doing through Paul to the Philippians to introduce them that there's something about the Christian that's so radically different that they have the mind of Christ. The Christian could enjoy and experience and know intimately what those desires of our risen Lord are. And that that relationship with Christ would would somehow bring about a sense of joy, a sense of a, a stillness, a sense of wonder inside each person that calls themselves a Christian. And yet it didn't start out that way. Remember it was said of Paul that he was breathing threats and murder. This man was filled with ungodly, uh, not Christ-like but he was attacking the very thing that he was supposed to represent. He had the mind of the flesh. And Paul met Jesus, and this murderer became a mirror. This murderer became a mentor. What happens in the human soul when God touches it to such a degree that that transformation takes place in such a way that it's just obvious, and yet how rare that is when you see God at work at that level. And when, when Ananias went to, G, went to Paul, he said this. He said, Brother Saul, brother, recognizing that he was one of the flock, he embraced Saul. It says, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on that road by which you were coming, has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then immediately there fell from Paul's eyes something like scales. It would have hit the dust. But there was something something that happened. And it was a funny thing. When you become blind, all of a sudden your ears, your hearing becomes more acute. And so Paul heard Jesus say, Why are you kicking against me? It's not easy to kick against the goad, and you're going to get hurt. He said, why are you resisting? So Paul met Jesus and was blinded. In this sense, Paul changed, and he quit kicking God. He quit resisting. And so through the Holy Spirit, Paul's heart was set free. 
And that's the title that F.F. Bruce gave to Paul. I love this title. He's the apostle of the heart set free. You are a Christian with the potential of having your heart set free just like Christ's heart was set free, just like Paul's heart was set free. Immediately, Paul was baptized by Ananias. And Paul was saved from Paul. Therefore, something took place in the heart of a man when he meets Christ that totally takes him out of this fleshly, self-centered mind and changes him radically. You know this story because we call it the gospel. And depending on how you hear this story about the gospel, you may hear it as a get-out-of-jail card free. You accept Jesus, you get your ticket, you go to heaven. I accepted Jesus, I'm on board. You may hear it as a way to improve your life, that Jesus loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, and therefore if you trust Jesus, you're going to get this wonderful plan, according to your thinking, is the two-car garage, picket fence, dog, and nice house, and obedient kids. Whatever, Or it could be he'll make you rich. He'll give you what, Jesus is a celestial bellboy, and he'll do what makes you happy make you prosperous. And so there's a gospel that's out there. Or the other gospel that focuses on Jesus is going to punish you for your sin. And the sin issue is the issue. And I'm here to say, yes, that's true, but it's not totally adequate. Because the issue is, we, our problem is not sin, though sin is a problem. Our problem is we're separated from God. And it's the separation that leads us into sin. If you want to deal with sin, you have to deal with the separation. And that's what Christ came to do by bringing us back into a relationship so that we stop sinning, quit kicking, and really embrace and worship the one who really embraces and enjoys us. This is what I mentioned last week when Larry Crabb mentioned that we come into the world relentlessly narcissistic. Resisting the kind of rigorous self-examination and reveals what's ugly inside of us because there's something inside of us that's missing, something inside of us that's wrong. And what's wrong we call sin, being separated, but we don't know the God who made us. And therefore we turn to other gods and other means to get our needs and desires met. Without understanding what that means in terms of our impact on people how we relate to others. And too often, he said, we live with our felt well-being as our priority concern. Now make sure you get that. For as a Christian, your priority concern is a competing passion that may very well block your love for God. And so we continue incurably addicted to ourselves and powerless to resist whatever temptations promise the sense of instant happiness. And that's the gospel that we live with in our day and age where God will make you happy. But that wasn't the issue for Paul. It wasn't the issue for the first century Christians. But when Paul got baptized, Paul understood one thing that I hope you understand. And if you don't understand, it's okay that you don't understand, but that's why you're here to, so that you can gain that understanding. That you belong to Christ. And that relationship, that, that partnership, that alliance is transformative in so many ways. And so when Paul was baptized, when Paul was set free from Paul, and Paul was set free to turn his eyes on Christ, something happened where Paul joined the biblical prophets of old 
as opposed to dealing with the bearded philosophers in Philippi and Greece. Interesting how all those philosophers had beards. But Paul joined uh, and he learned from the master teacher. Notice again that Socrates taught for 40 years, Plato for 50, and Aristotle for 40, but Jesus, only three. Because it wasn't that difficult. It wasn't an intellectual thing. You didn't have to figure out or analyze the world. It was a simple thing summarized in, in the whole Bible, summarized in, in one, one section where Jesus says, the whole law is summarized by love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. It's about mirroring the love of Christ that he has for you, and then you mirror that to others. That's not so philosophical, not so intellectual. It's just kind of available for every man. But Paul joined the prophets, and here's what I want you to hear. These were relational prophets, not rational philosophers. And in the Greek, you have an analytical, rational, philosophical mind. But with the Hebrew mind, it is relational all the way through. And so with the, the Jews, uh, they were seeking for signs to make that connection. But the, Jews were seek- the Gentiles were seeking wisdom to figure it out. And so I call this the difference between transformational versus transactional or religious rules, or some system that you get in to figure out how to make this world work. This is what Paul said in Philippians 2 last week. He said, said, let this mind, this relational mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God. He didn't regard his prerogatives. He didn't regard his position. He didn't enter into a transactional relationship with the Father or the Spirit. It was not about what he could get. It wasn't about him being happy. He didn't regard equality a thing to be grasped. But we do. We compare. We compete. We regard one another's. We're measuring, comparing, looking at each other. But Jesus did. So he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of human, and being found as appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is extreme love, extreme unselfishness, extreme other-centered. And therefore God highly exalted him. He loved Jesus, and he glorified Jesus, as we do too this day. So Lewis said, humility is thinking less of yourself. Is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. I think that's so pithy. I like that word. And therefore, we've got competing passions that we want this transactional. I'll do X and you do Y. I expect if I do this, you complete your side of the bargain. And it's a transaction where you... People go into the Christian life thinking, God, I'll obey you if you do this, and I'll consider your will. If it fits my plan, I'll con- I may join you. But I have these expectations upon you, God, and if you don't fulfill, me, fulfill them, I'm going to walk away. And you see a lot of people today falling away from Christ because they have this expectation that God's got to do something to change my life and make me happy according to my terms. 
a business model, a transactional model. It's a negotiated faith, a contractual agreement. Marriage is based on this sometimes. I'll marry you if you make me happy, so that's your job. Get to it. (laughs) And if you don't, I'll find somebody else who will. When relationships become need-based, goal-based, task-based, then you're under pressure. And Christianity that puts you under pressure, puts you under a system of rules, you're going to feel that I, I, I got to, I ought to, I should. And that duty bound, I've got to fulfill, I've got to perform, is not the gospel. You see, in, in the kingdom of heaven, relationships aren't economic. In the kingdom of heaven, they're not built on supply and demand. They're not based on needs. In the kingdom of heaven, relationships are based on desires. And you love because you love to love. Not because you need to love, you have to love, you should love. It's not an obligation. It's like you want to. And therefore your heart is set free to love. So I want to look at this. Because we understand we live in a world where people change how they relate to each other based on what they can get or on, based on their behavior. And so they spend time negotiated transactionally to receive something. You may hear this word transformational used in the business world a lot. It's very popular now. You have transformational leaders, but they are talking about inspiring and motivating and developing their teammates, their work colleagues in order for them to not micromanage but to have self-development again for the good of the culture the organizational culture and therefore culture is everything says one company and so if you're trying to improve the culture you're still in this transactional mode but you're this transformation is you want to focus on helping people grow which is fine which is good and it ends up being a mentoring or tutoring relationship now notice this this slide I found online, uh, it talked about the difference, difference between transactional and transformational, where the transactional, when you think about the source of power, it's your rank. Transactional is about the reliance or the relationship between those beneath the authority is that you have to comply to the leader. Time frame, it's short term. It's rewards oriented by payment. Super, supervisor is important more important than the employee sometimes. But the evaluation is going to be there as people try to tell you what to do. It's about your following the orders, the rule books, the policies. And therefore, the focus of leadership is the guy up front. It's what he's doing. You follow that guy. Transformational leadership talks about the character and the competence talks about the commitment of the followers to stay involved. It talks about uh, you're in there for the long haul, not just for the job immediately or the project management that you're doing, but you're, you're, you're a team member that's committed. The rewards, you feel good about your work. You like what you do. You're there and you have this self-esteem, as it were. You get recognition. The supervisor, yeah, he's important, but is not as important. Because the team's important. The development is the focus. And so the idea that if you're part of a transformational, it's about the group and the values. But notice the focus is on the individual heart. But I would submit to you that that heart is still fleshly. 
It's still, it's still humanistic. It's still focused on me. And therefore, there's one more thing that Paul knew and that you will know is Jesus is not transformational or transactional. Jesus is a transcendent leader. And therefore, he's going to lift you up so high that when you begin to think about what he's asking us to do, you think, wow, really? That is just incredible and impossible. Remember that passage in Philippians 2, 3, and 4? It says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Are you struggling with that verse? <laughs> because it's hard for you to get out of the self-centered. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That's a preoccupation with me. But Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. It's not about you. And then he goes on later on to another do verse. In verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. you got to be kidding. Is this too idealistic? There's something about, I want, if I don't get what I want, I'm going to, eh. if it's not driving, it's my wife keeping the coffee pot plugged in. It's just, the bun has to be on all the time if I want coffee. But don't unplug my, uh, do I grumble? Uh, these are hard things. <laughs> but if you do these, you will appear blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked, 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 and perverse generation. Perverse meaning bent. It doesn't, it's not the right form. It doesn't mirror God's likeness. And so these things about living like Christ, having him lift us up, he noticed, noticed this passage, it says, So then, beloved, as you have always obeyed, Philippian believers, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this is the focus today. If this transformation is going to take place, it's because God is doing surgery in your heart. There's an operation that the Holy Spirit does to shift your focus from a worldly-centered, a fleshly-centered, to a kingdom-centered orientation. And Paul says, you notice that there are three levels of obedience there. If you're only going to obey when I'm present, then you're going to conform when I'm around, but if I'm not around, you won't conform. That's for parents. They know that very well. But kids, because kids, when they get away from the parents, they don't have to obey their parents if they're not compliant. But the idea of being obedient when somebody's present watching over me is different than when the supervisor's absent or when the master's absent, when the parent's absent. And therefore, but those who, obey, who are obeying Without anybody watching, there's a conviction. There's something about them that they said there's, there's a desire to want to obey, not based on what people think or what I get out of it. It's just I'm going to do what God wants me to do. And the third one is there's something that goes way beyond that, which you'll see here. There's a wholeheartedness, just a wholeheartedness, a giving yourself to doing much more than the expectations. It's going beyond what people expect. But notice that shift of desires from a, from a self-centered, murderous, fleshly mind to something that's 
thinking about other people is a mark of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's God who operates, who works inside, who does this engineering to redesign your desires for desiring what he wants for you and what he is enjoying as he's working in us. It's his pleasure. Now Paul goes on in the Philippians and he brings out, he's already mentioned Christ as the example. He left heaven for Pete's sake or for heaven's sake or for Pete or heaven. And he goes into, he goes into the, the church of Philippi and he talks about two men. And I want to look at these things. I want to look at these guys for a minute. So bear with me as I go in the run around this. But there's two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now look at these guys. There's a, a Timothy from, from Derby, from Laconia, and Epaphroditus, a Philippian. Now I want to show you something that you may not see immediately in this passage. And it's the fact that behind these two stood this guy. And Paul walked with those two men. But he said of Timothy, look at Timothy. He was of kindred spirit, isopsychos, similarly minded, pertaining to a like soul. Timothy mirrored Paul's heart because God transformed Timothy through the relationship of the Holy Spirit through Paul. Now that's significant. He was genuinely concerned about them. And so I want to I wanted Go off a minute just to tease you a little bit with something. I'll come back to this. And so let me go back in the Old Testament to another relationship that you, if you were in church, and I didn't get this because I didn't go to church when I was a kid, but if you were in church and you went to Sunday school and you had those flannel boards, remember those? Uh, I don't remember. (laughs) But there's a story that you know about. I want to talk about the story of Jonathan and David. Because this relationship likewise had something that Paul said about Timothy and Epaphroditus. So here, let me go back real quickly. How old was Saul when he became king? You don't know this, so I'm giving it to you. In in 1082, Saul was born. Fifteen years later, Saul becomes king. Uh, When it came to pass... Uh, this is the story of Jonathan. I, I'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, so when Saul was uh, 15, uh, when he had his firstborn son, that's right, he was 15 when he had his firstborn son. 15, firstborn Jonathan. 15 years later, uh, let me get these numbers right. When Saul was 15 years old when he was born, Jonathan was born in 1067, and then 15 years later, he became king. Now, at 30 years old, Saul becomes king, and he went to war. He had one of his regiments being led by his son, Jonathan. Jonathan, at 15, the firstborn child, was old enough to fight to defeat the Philistines at Geba and then single-handedly defeated them at Michmash with his armor-bearer. Jonathan was 15 years old. Huh. Well, 
This would mean that Saul was 15 when he, when he became the father of Jonathan, and Jonathan was 15 when he became king. It's interesting to note that how old was David when David killed Goliath? David was about 15 or 16 when he confronted that giant enemy of God. Now, how old do you think the relationship between David and Jonathan? How old is Jonathan and how old is David when they meet? What do you think? Same age? Go back to your Sunday school. When you think of David and Jonathan, how old are these guys? You guys are all masked, so you can't say. So I want you to see something here. Jonathan is 42 years old when David killed Goliath. It's now 42 and a 15-year-old. They're not what some interpretations, some commentaries say. This is a relationship that is homosexual and has same-sex attraction. You will read this into this passage, but the passage says nothing like that. So you've, you've got a mark. You just want to put that out there. But it came to pass that when he made an end of speaking unto Saul, the king, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. This was similar to the same Timothy-Paul relationship of a kindred spirit. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. This wasn't a same-sex attraction. No way. But this is a 42-year-old man who looked at this young man and says, I just love him in a platonic way, in a, in a brotherly way, but I'm really committed to this guy because he has the same heart. Well, likewise, when you think when they met, um, Jonathan it says, was born in 1067. David was born in the 10th year of Saul's reign. So this means Jonathan is about 27 years old, uh, and Saul is 42. Dad is now going to go after David, Jonathan's friend, to kill him. And so this relationship, Jonathan then protects David from his own dad, basically. And so David is anointed a king later, and at 15 years old. Now Saul is 57 years old when he's uh, going to pass, and uh, Jonathan is 42 years old and still 27 years older than David. But for 15 years, Saul hunts down David. For 15 years, Jonathan protects David. They both die in 1010, and Jonathan and David had that same commit commitment you see, in the Old Testament, according to the Jewish Mishnah, they say this is an interesting point, that it wasn't transactional. It was more than transaction. It was a, it was a love relationship that was other-centered. Whenever love depends upon selfish ends, a task, a goal, when the task is over, so is a relationship. But the love passes away. But if it doesn't depend upon a task... It never passes away. That's in the Mishnah. That's how the Jewish readers read that story of David and Jonathan, and they passed it on. When love isn't based on a task, and it's based not on a need, but it's based on a relationship, there's a difference. 
But when it's based on selfish ends, like the love of Amnon and Tamar, where he raped Tamar, and then that love turned to hate. Samson and Delilah. When you have this Sodom and Gomorrah, if it's a transactional thing, your love will dissipate when it's all gone. That didn't happen with David and Jonathan. It was pure, pure relationship. That's what happened with Timothy. Tradition has it that Timothy was about 16 years old when Paul met him in Derby. His mother, he and his mother were converted to Christianity. And then five years later, Paul comes back and picks up Timothy to go to Philippi. Now get this, at 21 years old, this young man, Timothy, with Silas, accompanied Paul over to Asia Minor. But for 16 years, Timothy walked with Paul. Can you imagine that? For 16 years, Timothy had the same kind of spirit that Paul had. And Paul poured into his life all those things that Paul understood about the mind of Christ. And therefore, 16 years, Paul was closely identified with the apostle. Because he had that same kindred spirit, that same genuine love. And Paul imparted to Timothy a real concern for other people. Likewise, when you see that same commentary about, Paul, about Timothy, he says, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will be genuinely concerned. I have no one else. These transformed relationships are rare, but they are available in Christ. Paul was born in 2 AD. He was converted at 36. Twelve years later, in 48, he met Timothy. Paul was 46 years old. Timothy was 15 or 16 when they met. David and Jonathan, 15, 15. And Timothy was with Paul for 16 years, and Timothy was 37 years old when Paul died. He was a true partner, a true companion. And I hope, to send, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you. He relied on Timothy. He was his right-hand man. I have nobody else like him. Well, besides Timothy, there was this guy, Epaphroditus. I thought it was necessary to also to send you Epaphroditus, Philippians. Why? Because he's a hometown boy. Well, not really. But he lived in Philippi. But how old was Epaphroditus? Think about this, if you don't know, because it's, it's going to be an, an interesting twist. My brother, my fellow soldier, my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier. These are the descriptions of this man, Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was a Roman soldier who had retired and went to Philippi, and he was in Philippi as a retired soldier when somehow they met Paul in Philippi and he became part of the church. Now, as an older man, as a brother, as a fellow worker, as a soldier, he knew about task management. He knew about projects. He knew about transactional relationships. But what Epaphroditus learned was this transformational, this relational quality. They 
Timothy and Epaphroditus were both international. They had lived in, like Paul, in Tarsus, and they had lots in common. But the thing about Epaphroditus, notice his heart, because he was longing for you all. A soldier who would be a murderer like Paul, who would be one who would be brutal like Paul, somehow was transformed to be a lover like Paul. He was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. He was sensitive to what you would think about him because he was thinking about you thinking about him. (laughs) How does that take place? How does that take place? Indeed, he was sick to the point of death, sacrificial, but God had mercy on him, not only on him, but also on me. This guy walked with Timothy. And this guy probably 40 to 50 years old. Timothy, 20, 21, when he started, meets, meets with Paul and Timothy, and, and they're all there in Philippi. These guys are in a fellowship where God's Spirit is changing them because they have this relational quality. And these two, when they would get together, guess what they would talk about? <laughs> they were talking about Jesus the Messiah. They would talk about reaching the Philippians. They would talk about loving people. They would talk about the change. They would talk about this transcendent glory that God would give them. How does God transform us to take a murderer to a mentor? He uses the Holy Spirit. He sends people in your life to mentor and help you grow. Pastors, teachers, deaconesses, deacons, servants, friends, God uses every relationship because he's a relational God and he always works through relationships. But by sending his men and women who allow the Lord to operate on their heart, who know and obey the Lord, and who say, not my will, but thine be done. These men learn from the Holy Spirit and they pass it on, like Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. And they give themselves to loving Christ. And this loving Christ gives himself to them. And they know this. They're rare men. And therefore, our invitation to this joy, this apprentice that learns about being free to love other people and not being preoccupied with my own agenda, our own agendas, is we're free. Being touched by the Spirit, by the kindness and grace that my sins have been forgiven, that murder, that that horrible things, um, the sin that really preoccupied Paul, were washed away by the blood of Christ, and he was set free. Same for you and same for me. Touching others with the kindness and the grace of God, the good news is you too, if you follow Christ, will have the same mind of Christ and the same heart of Christ, and that will transform anything, no matter what it is. That's what the Philippians heard from Paul. And church, that's what I want you to hear from me. But I want us all to focus, not on each other, but to focus on the fact that the Holy Spirit is doing a work in each of us to will and to work for his good pleasure in a relational way. We worship such a great God to do that. He knows you. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your fears. And he'll change change your doubts. He'll change your direction. He'll change everything. If we simply go to him and say, Lord, it's me. Help me. And he will. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much 
this, this, in this little short passage, there's so much treasure. The fact that you've given us testimony after testimony after testimony of men that you've touched. Jesus, would you touch me? Would you touch us? Would you touch us in order that we would become the men and women that you want us to be? Lord, take us up, lift us up, transform us to have your mind. So, Holy Spirit, would you operate in us to make us believers of the heart set free? We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand for a closing song.